Good morning. Today we get to continue in our, our study of 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at hope in a hostile world. Uh, some of you may not know me, but I'm a, a science teacher. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing, along with my wife, who's up in the booth pushing the buttons up there today. Um, and I want to start with an illustration that comes from science, a little bit more so from her area. She teaches the life sciences, where I teach more uh, the physical sciences. But I think the illustration will help us understand a little bit of uh, what hope is about. Uh, so there was a study done where they took two different sets of rats and put them into uh, containers of water. And in one of them, they watched and within an hour, they had quit swimming and they had drowned. But the other container of water Every once in a while, they would reach down in there and lift the rat out of the water and then set it back in the water. And they would do that for each one of those every so often. And what they found out was that the rats in this one would continue swimming for up to 24 hours. And they concluded that the reason that that would happen was because they had hope. They decided they would keep swimming because they thought that someone might reach down and pick them up again. And so as we look at this passage this morning, Peter is encouraging, um, as, as Thomas has been calling it, the elect exiles. I, I like that phrase. I'm going to be using that. I don't know if it's stealing it, but it's continuing with what Thomas is saying. Uh, the elect exiles. And what is, what is our reason for hope? And what are we to do with that hope and that reason in this world that can sometimes be hostile? So let's, if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Today we'll be uh, studying uh, verses 13 to 17. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this, this morning and we again want to recognize your greatness. We want to set your name apart. We thank you for the hope that you've put in our hearts. And when given the chance, we ask that you would be giving us opportunity to share that reason. This morning, I ask specifically that you would 
uh, guard my words, that you would allow me to be open and able to hear your spirit. We commit this time to you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we see here is that Peter is drawing attention to hope, hope that these elect exiles now have in Christ and how they should prepare to give a reason for that hope in an environment that is hostile. There's persecution going on. As I was studying these verses the last few weeks, I was continually brought back to thinking about the life of Peter. Peter is a, as Thomas has shown us and even uh, dressed up as Peter for us, um, there's a lot to think about as far as his experiences. We know that he was questioned for his hope and what he believed and his relationship to Christ and the gospel. Uh, one of those times we see him denying Christ. We see him standing also before thousands and giving a defense of the gospel. So when Peter is questioned, this is a time, this is an opportunity that he has to give the reason for his hope. It's, to it's time to be able to speak the good news. But one of the first times we see him questioned, he, he denies and he responds with these words, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. He denies his friend, Jesus. But not only his friend, he denies what Jesus taught. He's asked again, and this time it's a little bit stronger. He begins to call down curses and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. As I was thinking about that, he had lived and walked with Jesus for many years. This was Peter's master teacher. He went, at that time, he was a disciple. He sat under the teaching. He was a close friend. So what did he fear? Had he lost hope? But there's a brighter side, right? We see in Acts 2 that Peter is questioned about what, hap what just happened at Pentecost. What is the meaning of that? And this time he gives a, a defense of the gospel. And the results were that 3,000 were added to their number that day. A couple chapters later in Acts 4, we read that he stood before Annas and the high priest and it lists a whole bunch of other people that were there and they questioned him again. And again, this time he gives a defense of the gospel. Last week, we heard Thomas share from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. And there Peter is drawing our attention back to Psalm 34. It's basically a quote from Psalm 34 describing what God means by good days. Not necessarily days without suffering or without persecution, but days in which you can experience God's help and blessing in those times of problems and trials. So David was the author of Psalm 34, 
And at that time, he was suffering. <clears throat> he was, at that time, among Israel's greatest enemy, the Philistines. And if you remember, this is where he acted crazy in front of the king to avoid being harmed. But why was he there in the first place? Well, that was because the king at home, Saul, had driven him out of Jerusalem. So the king at home wanted him dead, and probably the Philistine king did too. So who was there to harm him? To him, it seemed like probably about everyone. Yet, as David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Rather than rejecting God, David learned, sorry, he learned how to uh, draw his strength or depend on him even more. He found his protection in God. He says this too. I want to read it. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So today, we are going to continue to look at how the elect exiles interact with this hostile world that they're in, they're finding themselves in. A world that's hostile to the good news or the gospel. And keeping in mind Peter and his reaction when he was questioned, and maybe keeping in mind David as well. So what Peter teaches here in these few verses is that those who are born of God, the elect, the obedient, holy, set-apart children of God, what, how are they described? He describes them as those who are eager to do good, to live righteously, to fear God. They set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. And they prepare. They prepare to do what? To defend the gospel. And then gently and respectfully and with a clear conscience, they give the reason for their hope that they have. So we're going to try to look at seven points, seven characteristics today. They're not that long, but there's seven of them. Seven things, and I just kind of mentioned them a moment ago, but characteristics of these elect exiles living in a hostile world to the gospel. First, they're eager to do good. Second, they live righteously. Third, they fear God, not men. Fourth, they set apart God or Christ as Lord in their heart. Five, they're prepared to give an answer to those who question. Six, when they answer, they answer gently and respectfully. And seven, they also answer keeping a clear conscience. So let's look starting first of all here at verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. The elect exiles are those who are eager to do good. Doing good. Doing good looks on the consequences of sin in this world. It's miserable. And when someone sees that as an elect exile, they want to help. What he's saying here, it's 
Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Normally, if you do good, if you're helping those who need help, no one will bother you. If you do, or if you live the way it's described in verses 8 through 12 that we talked, or Thomas talked about last week, must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful speech, must turn from evil and do good, seek peace, pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, ears are on the attentive to their prayer. Normally, if you're doing good, no one's going to bother you. Even, even non-believers will not normally hinder people who are helping people. My wife used to work with some children in an area of, of the city where there was a lot of drug trafficking. And there was a the leader of that drug group was kind of the, I don't know what you call it, but brand that part of the city, that little part of the city. And she was allowed to go in there and work with the children because she was helping people. And he recognized that and allowed that. However, elect exiles should eventually expect hostility. When we live out our faith in an unbelieving environment, there are some things that are predictable and unavoidable. If you look at verse 17, um, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter knows that that is the end result. Eventually, good deeds will lead to persecution. But he knows that no one can really harm you. You might get persecuted. You might suffer. But no one can truly harm you. Why? Your inheritance is in the kingdom of heaven. That is our great reward. Another thing that just, as I was studying this, besides thinking about Peter and David, what just seemed to show up all the way throughout this is the teaching of Christ, the teaching of Christ, especially in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount. It appears that, that obviously Peter had sat there and he had heard that. In Matthew 5.44, he would have heard this teaching. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who, who persecute you. And if any of you memorized it in the King James Version, I don't know, maybe I'm saying my age here. But if you did, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. He might have also been thinking of Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful. Because showing mercy is about seeing and helping those who are in misery, doing good to those in misery. So the elect exiles, they are in a hostile world. We are in a hostile world. But they're eager to do good. Eager to help those around them who are in misery. Let's move on to our second characteristic. So first they're eager to do good. And in verse 14 it says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed. 
In the first part of verse 14, we find the statement that Peter would have, again, heard Jesus teach on the side of a mountain decades before. He seems to be echoing the last of the Beatitudes found in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. It was read for us this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. So, the elect exiles are characterized here as doing right, living righteously, righteously. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, another beatitude, for they will be filled. So what is this righteousness? Well, righteousness ultimately means that we are like Christ. That's the standard. That's a high standard. When we realize that standard, we recognize we can never do that on our own. Must, there must be a free gift. Nothing in hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And they shall be filled. There's the practical question. What does it mean to be filled, to be satisfied? Are we aware of God at work within us? Producing fruit of the Spirit, manifesting that in our lives? If that's happening, we can expect what happened to Peter. Someone's going to ask, why? Why are you living this way? Why are you living the way Christ lives? Why are you loving? Why are you compassionate? I was reminded of all the ministries that uh, we support, many in this city, around the country, around the world. Why, why are we involved in helping the sick, the poor, those who can't read, orphans, refugees, women and families in need, those with addictions? Why do we care for the children of this city? Why do people are going to ask us, why do we live that way? I was reminded of a missionary that uh, was here a couple weeks back and gave an amazing illustration of something or a vision they had of a fire truck extinguishing a fire that was raging in their community, their part of this city. Raging, not a real fire, but a fire of sin that was destroying families. And they wanted to be the vehicle that God used to stop that destruction. And as they start to work in that, and they start to love, and they start to teach, eventually, the community there is going to ask, why? And they will be given the opportunity to say, we love you because we love Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. And he died to set you free from this sin, this bondage of sin. 
No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can be set free. That's the, the greatest message, the best message, the good news, right? So I was just thinking about if everybody in this city, lots of people in the city, right? Millions and millions. If they were to hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we all in this city were to hunger and thirst for righteousness, what would happen to that fire? It'd go out. It would be put out. There's only one way to solve that, right? There's one true message. Jesus, he claims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As soon as we say that, though, that's our reason. It's narrow. It's the only way. It's exclusive. That's when the persecution can happen. Christians who are helping the community, who are representing the gospel, they're representing something, though, that is narrow and exclusive. It's not that we are better than the community. It's we are better off. We have a better message. We have the true message. In Matthew 5, right after these Beatitudes, if we'd kept reading a couple more verses, Jesus teaches on being salt and light. So salt, I like salt. I'm a science teacher, chemistry teacher. What does salt do? I didn't have a really good view of that until I came to Brazil. And I walked through the grocery store and there was this big piece of a fish sitting there. It didn't smell, right? Why didn't it smell? It had been salted. The salt had stopped the decay. Right after that, he talks about being light. Electromagnetic radiation, no. <laughs> Reflecting Christ's light in a dark world. There's darkness out there and we are to be light. Our righteousness, not our own righteousness, because that would be dark and it would be smelly, right? Filthy rags, but his righteousness. We are to live righteously in this world. Think about, you may have had this at work somewhere. They know you're a believer, you walk into the room and the conversation changes. You didn't have to say a word, but people, they start to modify their language. That's controlling the decay. That's light entering the darkness. So a Christian living right has a way of controlling the effect of evil. That can be at home, at work, school, community, socially, politically, economically. Let's go back a couple weeks now to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over, how? Without words. Without words. Is it bad to use words? No. 
But our behavior can be salt. It can be light. Live right. Demonstrate the gospel. That's what an elect exile does. Lives the gospel. And the world can be won over without words. So, first, one who is eager to do good. An elect exile. One who lives righteously, second. And third, if we continue in verse 14. In the second part it says, Do not fear their threats or do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. So, an elect exile fears God. Fears God. Peter's actually quoting from the book of Isaiah here. In, let me just read the verses from Isaiah that he is quoting from. This is Isaiah 8, 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls a conspiracy. Well, that's applicable today. <laughs> Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The elect exiles have come face to face with God. The one who is truly to fear, the one to dread. And they learn to fear God, not man. Uh, from the Beatitudes, they become poor in spirit. They have a proper view of themselves in relation to their view of God and others. We saw this happen to Peter when he was first called by Christ and it's given to us in Luke 5. Peter falls at Jesus' knees and he says what? Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. We also see this in Isaiah, two chapters before this, Isaiah chapter 6, where we see the seraphim who are calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And what does Isaiah say? Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. They've come face, Peter came face to face with Christ. Isaiah stood before God. They realize who they are, their poverty of spirit, and they realize they are utterly dependent on God. So they fear God, not men. They depend on God not men. So first, eager to do good. Second, live right. Third, they fear God. And fourth, if we look at verse 15, they set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. Then IV says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Some of the translations say sanctify Christ as Lord. Some of them say hallow. Christ as Lord. We just read Isaiah 11 and 12. If we go one more verse to verse 13, this is what Isaiah 
13 says, The Lord Almighty is one. You are to regard as holy. So there's another word, regard as holy. He is, it's, it continues, he is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So if we don't fear people, who do we fear? We are to set him apart. We are to hallow his name. It means to turn everything over to him. To live only to please him. Elect exiles will sanctify Christ. I like what it says, sanctify Christ in their hearts. So we ask Christ to inspect our hearts. See if there's any wicked way. Is there anything in our heart that we are, that we are fearing men instead of fearing God? When it's revealed, what do we do? If it's revealed to us, we mourn. Blessed are they that mourn. It's a spiritual mourning over the impurity in our hearts. Because we're concerned for the state of our heart. Is my heart pure? Or is my heart divided? Blessed are the pure in heart. Before an elect exile faces the world, the hostile world, they make sure that inwardly they're in the right spot. I believe in him. I depend on him. I fear him. And they recognize their love by him. They're praying the way Jesus taught in that same sermon. Hallowed be thy name. So we're calling on God to hallow his name. To cause his name to be set apart. In our church. In the city. In the world. To bring hearts to the place where they all hallow his name. They set apart his name. We ask the Father to go to work. So that the whole world would fear him. Because he is a jealous God. He's jealous when we give our affection to another. When our heart is divided. Hallow his name. Put him in a category all by itself. Highest value. Greatest value. The most cherished prize. The kids aren't in here right now, but I was at school. Their cherished prize right now for our kids. Some of you are probably thinking about it. It's World Cup time. <laughs> right? The little sticker books. But... For us, what is, what is our cherished prize? If people look at, at, at us, what do they see? Where do they see our heart? Is our heart in our career? Is our heart in what people think of us and our status in this culture? Have I given my heart to power or to sports? Social media. Often it's clear to everyone else but us where our heart is. It's clear to God, and he burns with jealousy. So we should ask, where, where is our affection? Is it, search our hearts. As blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So first, the exiles 
eager to do good. Second, do what is right. Third, they fear God. Fourth, they set apart Christ in their hearts. Hallow Christ. And fifth, from also verse 15, they are prepared to give an answer of their hope. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That sets Christ apart. That shows he's valuable. When we're in a, a hostile situation, a crisis, and we have hope. Often these times of crisis, they will actually give an opportunity for witness. You're in the hospital or, or wherever and, and you have opportunity. They see there's something different and they ask. When we're not afraid, then maybe of persecution, suffering, it's a testimony that our hope is real and Christ is the reason for our hope. So we're, we are in, instructed to be prepared to explain that hope. So I've been asking myself this, and I want you to ask yourself honestly, what, what would be that reason? If someone came up to you today and said, what is, what is your reason for your hope? Why do I believe? Why do I, why do I set him apart? Why do I hallow him? as my hope and my treasure. I thought about how we could answer that from a little bit of my own testimony. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents believed, my grandparents believed. So I started believing. Is that my hope? I hope not, <laughs> right? Does that set Christ apart? Does it hallow his name? if that's my reason. For Jesus to be set apart, our answer has to be a good one. How have I seen him? How have I stood before him in his presence? Or am I relying on what my parents saw of him? Am I prepared? Well, many of you have, like, like me, have spent years worshiping reading scripture, studying the Bible, praying. We should be prepared, right? And I think we are. We are to live in a state of preparedness so that when someone comes up to us and maybe they are hostile or maybe they are drowning and they want to know what our hope is, anytime be ready to share that. Search the scriptures, right? Get to know as much of him as you possibly can. Christianity is not just about coming together and being together here on a Sunday. and It's about getting to know him and setting him apart in our hearts. Some things that maybe would give us hope. Um, we, we look in scriptures as we're studying, we see the change that happened in Peter. Look at, you know, what a difference. 
the change that, that we see in, that, in him, from denying Christ to standing there in, uh, before thousands and giving a defense. Maybe it's pers more personal. Maybe you have seen friends or family or, or yourself, your heart has been changed. You've seen lives changed, and you can share that hope. Or you've studied Christ's teaching, the master teacher, right? No one teaches like him. And as you read through that, maybe that's your hope that you can share. Or you've seen in this book the fulfillment of prophecy, and that gives you hope. Be prepared. Study his word. Get to know him. We haven't seen all we can of him. There's much, much more we can see. So let's go on to number six. First, eager to do good. Second, they do what is right. They fear God. They set apart Christ in their hearts, prepared to give the reason for their hope. And then when they give the reason for their hope, they answer gently and respectfully. I went to a university, a secular university, and there would be a, a mall where people would come and preach. They'd preach the gospel. Often it was a hostile environment. Some of the preachers would come and preach with gentleness and respect and say, I'm here because I love you. Christ loves me. Christ loves you. And I'm here because I love you. And even though they were being attacked hostile, with hostile words, they would, they would share that. They would give a reason for their hope, for the reason why they were there telling them about Jesus. So know why you have hope. With confidence, then, you can stand there when you're questioned, and you can respond with gentleness and respect. We don't have to get defensive or argue, retaliate. There's Peter again, right? <laughs> it's like us. <laughs> we like to retaliate. How did he retaliate? He's known for taking his sword and cutting the ear off. I bet no one in here has done that. We might have wanted to do that. But with gentleness and respect, that wasn't gentleness and respect. There's a calmness that comes when we know our hope. I'm reminded of another beatitude. Blessed are the meek. What is our attitude? Is it defensive? Is it, are we sensitive? Are we trying to protect ourselves? Are we fighting for our side? This one mall preacher that, that we would bring as our Christian fellowship, Cliff Connectly was his name, he made it a point of saying that he was fighting for both sides. It wasn't fighting for our side. He cared about the one who was questioning. And he answered gently and respectfully. It was a great uh, example for me. As we move to our last characteristic, yep, finally. <laughs> um, first, eager to do good. Second, they do what is right. Third, fear God. Fourth, set apart Christ in your heart. Fifth, 
be prepared to give the reason for your hope. Six, as you give that answer, do it gently and respectfully. And seventh, keeping a clear conscience. Verse 16. There's an English poet from the 17th century, Samuel Johnson, who has a quote that I think just goes really well with this passage right here. It says, shame arises from the fear of men, conscience from the fear of God. So how does the elect exile keep a clear conscience? How could Peter have kept a clear conscience? Conscience means, ah, with science, right? With knowledge, with knowledge. Conscience has been described as a, a window that when it's clean allows light to come through. But as it gets dirty, it blocks the light. So keeping a clear conscience is keeping that window clear so that the light can come through. The knowledge of God needs to be able to be let in. We need to see more and more of him. We need to hunger for more and more of him and we need to respond in obedience to that. We need to be true to that when we are responding to people and answering those questions. Not fearing men. Obey what is found in his word. Respond to what is found in his word to keep that window clean. When we deny Christ, then like Peter, what happens to your relationship? And what happens to your conscience? So are we true? Are we true to Christ? Am I true to Christ? Are we true to his gospel when we're in our workplace, our school, when we're among friends? When we're not, that window can start to fog. And we must, when we recognize it, deal with that immediately. Confess it. Confess it to God. And if, it, if we have harmed an individual, confess it to them. But restoration waits, right? Think of Peter. Do you love me? But it was more than that. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? So as we wrap this up then, the elect are eager to do good. They do what is right, live like Christ. They fear God. They've stood in his presence before him. They recognize who they are. They set apart Christ in their hearts. Their heart is not divided. Their affections are not divided. They are prepared to give the reason for their hope. They have hope and they're, they're ready at any moment. They do it with gentleness, with respect, with integrity, keeping a clear conscience. So when we come face to face with Christ and we put our hope in him, we've turned our future over to him, we're allowing him to to go to work inside of us. When our hope is in him, he gives us the freedom then to do good. He takes the futility out of our work and the sting out of death. 
When our hope is fearless, well defended, meekly, but we're zealous for good deeds, the end result, he shines brighter. And people will ask. And people will become hostile when we tell them. But when persecution comes, our hope shines even brighter as they see our hope. And we can be ready to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. As the uh, musicians come, uh, we can be thinking this week maybe about what is the reason for our hope? Are our hearts divided? And there will be some people out here that can pray with you here after the service. <coughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord.